the whole philosophy of this is I can always make more money. I can't get more time. And so it's not really good use of my time to talk to sellers. Hi, you're listening to Ready to Scale, the second season of That Really Happened. This season is focused on APS of real estate, asset, process, and strategy. Each guest on the show will reveal the assets they invest in and why they chose to do so. From multifamily to industrial, self-storage, mobile home parks, and more. Then, they'll uncover the processes, tools, and systems they've used to build multi-million dollar businesses. And finally, they'll uncover new, unique, and exciting strategies to invest in real estate. From co-working to buy and hold, fix and flips, co-living, and much, much more. Now let's get the show started. Hi guys, welcome to Ready to Scale. I'm Ellie Perlman, your host, broadcasting from sunny California. When I'm not behind the mic, I buy multifamily properties with passive investors who partner with me on my deal. So this month, I'm giving away a document called Breaking Down the LOI, which would walk you through the different segments of a letter of intent, which is the non-biting document you send a seller when you offer to purchase their property. So you can find the document at ellieperlman.com slash resources. If you enjoy the podcast, we ask you to take a minute and rate us on iTunes. That would mean the world to us. All right, so let's get started. Today, my guest is known as the land geek. Mark Podolsky focuses on buying and selling raw, undeveloped land. He has been actively investing in real estate and raw land, completing over 5,000 transactions to date. He's the host of not one, not two, but three podcasts, The Best Passive Income Model, The Art of Passive Income, and The Land Geek Podcast. So in addition, Mark also is the author of the book Dirt Rich, as well as the founder of GeekPay.io, an automated collection system for lenders. And without further ado, I would like to welcome Mark to the show. Hey, Mark. Hello, Perlman. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you're calling us today from sunny Phoenix, Arizona, which, okay, yeah, we don't have the beaches, we don't have the ocean, <laughs> but you know, we do have Ellie amazing parking spots. So take oh. that Santa Monica. <laughs> yeah, we can't really compete with amazing parking spots. That's for sure. So Mark, can you tell me and the listeners a little bit more about your background and how you started investing in Roland? Yeah. So I'm going to rewind the tape to 2000 and imagine me in my car, a 45 minute commute to work and back. I was a overworked, overstressed investment banker specializing in mergers and acquisitions with private equity groups. And I had no control. I mean, Ellie, it got so bad for me that I wouldn't get the Sunday blues anticipating having to be back at work on Monday, I'd get the Friday blues anticipating the weekend going by really fast and having to be back at work on Monday. So my firm hires this guy and he's telling me that as a side hustle, he's going to these tax deed auctions. He's buying up raw land, pennies on the dollar. He's flipping them online and he's making an average 300% return on his investment. And I'm looking at companies all day long. And Ellie, a great company has 15% EBITDA margins or free cash flow. Great company. Average company is 10% on 
I'm looking at companies all day long, less than 10%. So I don't believe him. I've got three grand saved up for car repairs. I go to New Mexico. I do exactly what he says to do. I buy up 10 half acre parcels and average price of $300 each and put them up online. They all sell for an average price of over $1,200 each, 300%. It worked. So I took all that money. I went to another auction where I live in Arizona. Again, this is 2000. There's no one in the room. I'm buying up lots. I'm buying up acreage for nothing. And it takes about six months and I sell all that property and I made over $90,000 cash. So I go to my wife and she's pregnant at the time. I say, honey, I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to be a full-time land investor. And she says, absolutely not. So I said, (laughs) okay, okay. So it took me about 18 months for the land investing income to exceed the investment banking income. And then I quit. I've been doing it full-time ever since. And I absolutely love it. Wow. That's a really good story. And I think it's even, as you mentioned, it's hard to quit a very lucrative, you know, a very comfortable job, cushy job and do this full time. You need to see the cash flow and you need to understand and believe that you can do it regularly. So it will make sense to make that switch. I want to start talking about, you know, raw land and kind of dive into the asset aspect of it. Can you explain to the listeners, when you say a raw land, what exactly do you mean? Okay, so basically raw land is really just an undeveloped piece of dirt. So Ellie, if you're going to buy a multifamily project, well, you're going vertical. You're building on that base of dirt. So that's essentially what I'm buying. Now, I can kind of walk you through the model. So it's, it's really, you get a whole bird's eye view at 50,000 feet. So let's just take you as an example, okay? You live in Santa Monica, California, right? Right. So I'm going to pretend that you own 10 acres of raw land in Texas. And I'm going to pretend that you owe $200 in back taxes. So Ellie, you're advertising two things to me. Number one, you have no emotional attachment to that raw land. You live in Santa Monica, properties in Texas. And number two, you're distressed financially in some way, because when we don't pay for things, we don't value them in the same way. And you're not paying your property taxes. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at the comparable sales on that 10 acre property for the last 12 to 18 months. I'm going to take the lowest comparable sale and I'm going to divide by four. And that's going to give me what Warren Buffett would call a 300% margin of safety. And then I'm going to send you an actual offer. So let's just say, for example, it's lowest comp is 10 grand. I'm going to send you an offer of $2,500 for that piece of property. You accept it because for you, you've been getting notices from the treasurer every single month saying, Ellie, you don't pay your property taxes. We're going to auction it off to a tax deed or a tax lien investor. So for you, $2,500 is better than nothing and you accept it. In reality, three to 5% of people accept my quote unquote top dollar offer Mm. of 25 cents on the dollar. So now that you accepted it, I'm going to go through due diligence or in-depth research. I'm going to confirm you still own the property. I'm going to confirm that back taxes are only $200. I'm going to confirm there's been no breaks in the chain of title. There's no liens or encumbrances. I have this whole due diligence checklist. And when we get to scaling, I basically outsource that 
to my team in the Philippines, I pay $11 and they have access to an American title company. Now that's for deals that are 5,000 or less. For deals that are 5,000 or more, we'll go through a traditional title company. I'm not going to take the risk. So mm -hmm. now I own it and I paid you $2,500 because due diligence checked out. And then Ellie, I have a built-in best buyer for this property. I'm going to sell it 30 days or less. Do you know who my buyer is? No. Who are your buyers? The neighbors. The neighbors. It actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. I'll send out neighbor letters saying, hey, here's your opportunity. Expand your holdings, protect your privacy, protect your views, know your neighbor. And oftentimes the neighbors will buy it. Now, if they pass, I'll go to my buyer's list. My buyer's list passes. I'll go to a little website you probably never heard of called Craigslist. 10th mm -hmm. most trafficked website in the United States. That's a very even, small, insignificant website. Even even smaller one. I'll go to Facebook, Marketplace, buy sell groups. And then I'll go to the lands, landmoto.com, landsofamerica.com, landflip.com, landhub.com. There's a lot of these platforms that just are specialized in buying and selling raw land. But the way that I'm going to price it, I'm going to make it irresistible. So I paid $2,500. I'm going to ask for a $2,500 down payment on that raw land. I want my money out on the down, or I might go six months out. And then I'm just gonna make it a car payment. Let's say $449 a month, 9% interest over the next 84 months. So it's a one-time sale. I get recurring income. I get my money out. And then I get recurring passive income of $449 a month and 9% interest for the next 84 months. Ellie, no renters, no rehabs, no renovations, no rodents. And because I'm not dealing with a tenant, I'm exempt from Dodd-Frank, RESPA, and the SAFE Act, any of this onerous real estate legislation. So the game that we play is can we create enough of these land notes where our passive income exceeds our fixed expenses, and now we're working because we want to, not because we have to. That's very interesting. And I definitely see a lot of advantages of buying raw land, as you mentioned, there's no tenants or, you know, expenses are probably pretty minimal. What would you say are the main advantages and then disadvantages of investing in raw land? The real main advantage of investing in raw land, there's a few of them. Number one, you're talking about an unloved, unsexy niche. So you won't go on HGTV or the DIY network and see me in, in, you know, on a show called Flip This Land. The before mm -hmm. picture is raw land. The after picture is raw land. It's just me in front of my computer. The other advantage is it's scalable. So I can really travel the world and just with an inexpensive laptop and an internet connection, run this business as well as with a virtual mailbox. So it can all be done anywhere in the world. The number three, the biggest advantage is that you have an inefficient market. Nobody knows what raw land is valued at. It's really what a buyer and a seller agree to. The comps are all over the place. So having those three advantages for raw land is really pretty special in my mind. So when you went in for your first deal that was in, you know, outside of the US, it was not in your backyard. How did you know how much to pay for the land? Well, I only buy US land. But if I'm, let's say that I'm in Europe, I can take yeah. my laptop and I can still buy and sell raw land in the United States. 
But how do you know what's the valuation of the land? How much is a good price and how much is a bad price? So for, with multifamily, we have cap rates, we have comps, we can assess, we know how much the, you know, the property across the street three months ago was sold for per door. So we can, you know, we have all the tools and resources that we can evaluate how much, you know, if a door was sold for $120,000, then offering 150 doesn't make any sense. In some cases, how do you go about it? So I go to the county assessor and I can see the comparable sales on those parcels for the last 12 to 18 months. And mm-hmm. then again, I'm just going to divide by four and I want that 300% margin of safety. No one's going to get mad at me if they only make 150% on a deal. Now on average, because we do owner financing, we're making between 500 and a thousand percent on our deals. Mm, Very interesting. And what would you say are the main disadvantages or challenges when you're buying and selling raw land? The biggest disadvantage is that there's no tax advantages to buying raw land because there's no depreciation. Raw Mm. land lasts forever. So the way that we get around this is that we can invest in raw land and we can really sort of supercharge, let's say, our retirement plans, either using a self-directed IRA or what I use, which is a qualified retirement plan. So I can have a SEP and a Roth piece of that, and I can invest in the raw land, make these big returns, and just keep growing my retirement exponentially, knowing that I don't get any real tax advantages of depreciation with the raw land. That's the biggest disadvantage. I think another piece of this that could be a little scary is due diligence, where if you buy in a super fun site, well, you're taking on millions of dollars of potential liability from that seller. Now, this is why I only specialize in the Southwest, Northwest, in Florida. I don't buy raw land in New Jersey or let's say Pennsylvania. Now, you can always double check in your due diligence using... You just go to, to uh, epa.org and it shows you where all the super fun sites are. So you know you're avoiding it. Got it. Okay. That's very interesting. So there's there's a way to know, you know, how much you pay for land and then how much you should pay. And also there's, we we're talking about the tax, you know, the tax advantages are not there, but it still can be a very lucrative investment. You know, I want to switch and talk a little bit about the process of, you know, buying raw land. Can you talk a little bit about what systems and automations you use in your business? Okay, Ellie, now let's get geeky because <laughs> this is my favorite part of the land business is that we let's are 90% automated with software systems, processes, inexpensive virtual assistants, and then software on the back end. So on the front end, I use a software program that I developed called LG Pass, the Land Geek Proprietary Automated Software System. But essentially, it's just taking a list from the county, and we're going to convert it to Excel or a .csv file. We upload that list into our software, and then using an API with like a lob.com or a click-to-mail.com, we send out our offers, and then we can price our offers in there. Then once they're accepted, we've got a CRM where you can actually see all the deals. We just go into the software and we have our 
intake manager, who's very inexpensive, talk to the sellers because the whole philosophy of this is I can always make more money. I can't get more time. And so it's not really good use of my time to talk to sellers. Sometimes they just want to call and yell at me about the offer. Sometimes they're just confused. Like, what is this? And so we have the intake manager qualify them to make sure that they're actually a seller. Once they're qualified, the intake manager goes into the software and then it goes into our closing piece. And then we'll have our acquisition manager. And then we go through due diligence. So we have our due diligence checklist. We send it off to our team in the Philippines or we go through an American title company. And then after we do our due diligence, we close with our seller. And then essentially the deeds and all the paperwork are created in our software. What used to take me 20 minutes in paperwork takes me about one second. You just press a button. It's all there. Then we record the deed using simplifile.com. So even that piece, I, don't, I can just scan the deed and upload it into Simplifile. It gets recorded. I get confirmation. It's fantastic. Now that I own the property, we're going to upload our neighbor letter into that area. We're going to have our team go to a GIS map and identify all the neighbors, send out the neighbor letters in that list. And then we start with our marketing and it's all kind of just shown in LG Pass. We're marketing what our platforms are, what our pricing is, what our headlines are, and all of that is in this software. Then when we sell the property, we use a program called geekpay.io. This is a set it and forget it system of getting your down payment and then collecting the monthly payment every single month automatically via ACH or check. Now, if the check bounces, we use the credit card as a backup. So I went from an 8% default rate to a 4% default rate. So all on the line, we're using software, inexpensive virtual assistants, and software again to complete the entire transaction. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And it actually sounds like you have a pretty robust automated system. And it, I'm assuming that it took you some time to get there. But when someone is just starting out or they have been buying real estate, and you can, of course, you know, use a very similar system with other asset classes, doesn't have to be Roland. But when someone is starting to build their automated system, what would be the first steps in order to get to, you know, a full automated process like what you have now? So this took me five years to do. And a lot of it was my, like, was just me. I had superhero syndrome and I didn't think anyone could do any of this as well as me, which was a complete lie. So I kind of went into the kind of kicking and screaming. Our clients kind of get it all set up. It takes about 12 months to really start scaling. So essentially you got to look at what do you hate doing the most? Outsource that piece first. For me, I hated scrubbing a list. So mm -hmm. I'd get this list from the county and now I got to scrub it. And that can all be done from somebody on Fiverr. And there's these Excel ninjas and they'll do exactly what you need to do. So that's sort of the metric in first is what do you hate to do? Outsource that first. The really important thing I think was scaling in the beginning is make sure that you're delegating and you're not abdicating. You need to know enough yourself to know if the person that you hired is competent or not. The last thing you want to do is abdicate, give them these instructions, and you don't know if they did a good job or a bad job. You don't know how long the task should take if you yourself have never really done it a few times. 
So mm-hmm. I think that's really important. At least go full cycle yourself completely at least once before you start building the machinery of scaling and outsourcing and working your software program for sure. All right. I think these are very, very good tips for someone who is starting out. And and you're absolutely right. It does take time to get to a full, you know, operating automated process. But taking the steps that you've just mentioned, I think these are great tips right there. And I want to kind of move to the third part of our interview and talk about strategy. You talked about, of course, you know, Roland is your bread and butter. And you talked about leveraging, you know, systems and automations to scale your business. When it comes to strategy, what do you think is the key to really scaling a business beyond, you know, creating processes? What were the steps that you took to scale your business? I think for me, there's this sort of leap of faith at some point in time with your business because you get to a point where, okay, if the cheapest person I can hire is myself, well, when do I get myself out of this? Because now I've got to spend money to have somebody do it. And you need to have this sort of leap of faith that the time that you are going to spend as a CEO is going to be really valuable time on working on that strategy, looking at ways of making the business better and bigger and more profitable to justify the expense of the software, of the virtual assistants, of your acquisition manager. And, you know, in the beginning, you start seeing money just shelled out and you're like, wait, where's, when's the money going to come back to me? And that part is very scary. Nevertheless, you don't scale. Like I'm one person. I don't scale. Ellie, you don't scale. We have to start right. putting these pieces in place, knowing that once they're built, it's just going to be a machine and it's going to not just pay for itself. We're going to have a massive return on our investment on all these pieces. But in the beginning, you have to shift sort of from scarcity mentality to abundance mentality. And it's not like flipping a light switch. You've got to kind of do it slowly. It's, it's very difficult to conceptualize until you're doing it. And it actually takes, I think, a third party to kind of help you do it. I know it, for, it did for me. I had a mentor who was great. He was, just, he was just very blunt. He's like, Mark, you don't have a business. I'm like, what do you mean? It felt like a business to me. I made my own hours. I didn't have to be in an office. I could do it from anywhere. He's like, no. It's like, what happens if you die? It's like, your business stops. So what happens if you get sick? Your business stops. You're doing all the work. That's not a business. You're not an entrepreneur. You're just a really high paid freelancer. So you need to do these things to build a business, to build something bigger than yourself. And then once you're completely free, you've solved two issues. You've solved your money problem and you've solved your time problem. Most people are just solved their money problem, but they don't ever solve their time problem. Mm-hmm. And this, this is how you solve both. Awesome. I think it's very, very well said. And I think it does take time for people when they start their businesses to realize that they have to stop at some point and scale and and invest a little bit more money so they can make more money. And as you mentioned, you know, fix your time problem. 
And it reminds me Robert Kiyosaki's book about where he's basically describing the four quadrants and he's explaining exactly the confusion that you experienced with the difference between self-employed and a business owner. You are self-employed if you do everything. Even if you have an LLC, you don't you don't own a business until you're scaling and, you know, outsourcing at least some of the work to employees, contractors, whatever it is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've gotten to the point now because I'm so geeky that I work an hour a week in Frontier Properties. And really, it's just a weekly meeting with my acquisition manager. And we look at the numbers, how many offers went out, how many deals are pending, how many deals we close. And as long as that number is increasing, I sleep really well at night. The problem for my team is when I have coffee and then I call them up and say, hey, let's try this. Because then I'm breaking something in the system. They're like, oh, no. But that's really my job is to think about these things and how mm-hmm. can we build and grow to the next level and just be better. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Mark, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge about Roland and scaling, you know, business and automating the business. That was great. We have arrived to the lightning round questions. Are you ready? I mean, I'm a little, little nervous. I think I'm ready. <laughs> All right, let's start. So Mark, what's your favorite hobby? My favorite hobby right now is my morning meditation. Does that count? Absolutely. Is meditating a hobby? Yeah, absolutely. I love it. It could be a lifestyle, but yeah. Yeah, I love it. You do it every morning? Every morning. I use the Waking Up app by Sam Harris. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it's just such a great way to start the day because then I can have a little bit of sort of space from my thoughts and not identify so many times with my thoughts and get so lost in thought and realize, oh, that's just a bunch of thoughts. It's Mm -hmm. not, I don't need to act on those. I can just watch them. Interesting. What's the number one thing that people don't know about you? I know magic. You know magic. So you you do magic tricks? I can do magic tricks. Yeah. Did you learn it somewhere or you just... Yeah, I I learned it as a kid. Ah. But I used to be one of that annoying kid that would come up to adults and say, you want to see a trick? And they're like, (laughs) you know, okay. But yeah. (laughs) Do you still do it? For my children, I'll, you know, once in a while, I'll pull something out or for their friends. And then I'm the annoying dad. Yeah. That does but magic not too tricks. often. Yeah, I don't, do, <laughs> I don't do like parties or anything like that. Okay. Well, you don't need to. You have a, a thriving, you know, business. What do you wish you had known when you just started out? I wish that I had known that. I, I wish that I had known that when I first started out, I, I think that I wish I had a mentor in the very beginning. I wish I had that person that could fill in the gaps of what I didn't know I didn't know because it took me a long time to sort of figure that out and shortcut that or smart cut that. I think that would have really paid huge dividends for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. What's your number one advice to a real estate investor who wants to scale their business? My number one advice is start outsourcing those things that you hate first and 
really, when you're doing the work yourself, use a program like Loom or Zoom, record yourself, and then go to a program like Rev.ai, get it transcribed, and then start making a checklist in process.street. So pro, like, and then you have this total transparency about each step in your business and breaking it down and then go to your spouse or a you know friend or maybe your child and see if they understand it. And if they can do it, then you know you've got a good system or process. All right. That's a great tip. Mark, where can people find you? At thelandgeek.com. Thelandgeek.com is a great place to start. And, and Ellie, I actually have a $97 course called the Passive Income Launch Kit. I'd love to offer that to your listeners for free if they just go to thelandgeek.com forward slash launch kit and they can see if this model resonates with them or not. I really think it's the gateway drug into doing multifamily because if if you're starting and you want to start in multifamily, but you don't have a lot of money, this is a great way to build up that cash, get a taste of that passive income, have some experience, and then start doing these bigger deals and become, you know, like live in Santa Monica. (laughs) All right, Mark, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ali. I really appreciate it as well. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.